Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Genesis chapter 44. We're going to look not just at Genesis 44, we're going to go all the way into Genesis 45 uh, to verse 15 as we continue to study the gospel according to Joseph. Um, do you ever wonder if the sky is falling? I mean, really, have you wondered sometimes that the sky could possibly be falling, all of this falling apart, right? Um, Chicken Little, you know this name, this character, this story, was developed by Walt Disney actually in 1943. I had no idea, but there was very much an agenda to uh, Chicken Little and the story. Um, It was written as an anti-Nazi short film, cartoon, um, to describe the possibilities of human evil when combined with the power of mass hysteria. Hence, the sky is falling and everything kind of falls apart with that lie. Um, Our story is really, really interesting and engaging, so I don't need to tell you this riveting story of Chicken Little. Um, The reason I was thinking about Chicken Little is because of the words of a Lutheran uh, I read this week uh, that I thought was actually pretty powerful, pretty convicting. Um, he's looking back at the year 2020. Do you remember this year, the year 2020? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is what he said. Neither this global pandemic, the gross injustices, the racial tension, the mad riots, the macabre political theater, not even Tiger King should have shocked us, especially those who have been schooled in the Torah and the prophets. That's part of the Old Testament. All human history from Cain and Abel onward has amply demonstrated that destruction and stupidity, navel-gazing and bloodshed, the ubiquity of fools, and the thin veneer between civilization and anarchy is the norm, not the exception. This year just happened to be a rather colorful sampling of our commonly shared low anthropology, Welcome to Humanity 101. And yet, he goes on, we are not the church of Chicken Little, but the church of Jesus Christ. We do not run around screaming that the sky is falling. There is no panic in heaven over the chaos of this world. Reigns the King of Kings, Jesus the resurrected, before whom every knee will eventually bow, whether they like it or not. And I find that so, so comforting because I don't know about you, but looking back on the weeks and months and years, it has seemed in certain ways like the sky is falling. Take the pandemic out of it if you want to. And just look at the human wickedness we have seen recently. And it has felt 
like the sky is falling, like evil, like wickedness is going to prevail, is going to have the last word. And these brothers in this story have felt this. Joseph has felt this. Jacob, certainly the dad, has felt this like evil and wickedness is going to win, like the sky itself is falling. But the good news of this passage, my friends, is that we are not the church of Chicken Little. We are the church of Jesus Christ who sits on his throne, who is very much in charge of all things, holding all things together by the power of his hand. The sky is not falling in this story, and it is not falling in our story and the story of humanity. Wickedness will not prevail. There are two scenes in this passage that communicate that, that comfort us with that. Repaying good with evil and repaying evil with good. So I want you to listen out as I read Genesis 44 through 45, 15. I'll skip around a little bit because this morning in the first service, I was like, man, this is a long passage. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his, stu- his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this cup the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say, whoever has found it will become my slave, and the rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 30. But basically, Judah is saying, we can't go back to our father without Benjamin, because if we do, our father will die. Verse 30. So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you. 
my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no more plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. And Joseph basically says, go back, tell my father this, and bring him and the rest of the family here to Egypt. Verse 14. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Lord, this is your word, and it's really, really good, and it's really, really beautiful. And uh, we need it. We, we really need it because wickedness uh, is so prominent in the world in which we live. And we need the balm of this word to know that evil will not prevail and the sky will not fall because of Jesus. So would you communicate that reality to our hearts? We pray by your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, this scene, at least chapter 44, reads a lot like a hangover. Um, and it is really one of the great hangover narratives in the Bible. Um, you think about it, the scene was before the brothers basically worried their way all the way to Egypt, thinking that when they get there, Joseph was going to arrest them on the spot for supposedly stealing the silver that was in their bags from their first trip. They show up, anxious, I'm sure, and Joseph doesn't arrest them, rather. He gives them much mercy, and he lavishes them with this feast at the end of last chapter. So as bellies fill and as glasses clank among the brothers, you and I, the readers, really start to think, geez, maybe things are going to finally work out for this dysfunctional family. Maybe this is going to end pretty well. The next morning is where our passage starts. The brothers wake up. I imagine their head is perhaps a little sore and their stomachs are maybe a little sour from the big party the night before. They start to make their way to Egypt. And I could imagine them saying things like, you know, dad is going to be really proud. I mean, we're coming back with all this grain. We're probably going to survive this famine. Our relationship with Joseph, or they don't know it's Joseph, but our relationship with the powerful dude in Egypt is good. We got Simeon back and we're bringing back Benjamin, dad's most treasured possession. He's going to be proud 
We're told that their sacks were filled to the brim with grain and also their money was put back in. And also that Joseph had planted his special cup into the mouth of Benjamin's sack. So as they are on their way home, boasting of a successful trip, suddenly they hear, hey, you, stop right there. It's Joseph's steward. You've stolen the master's special cup after all he's done for you, the mercy, the feast, the grain. Why would you steal from him? Why have you repaid good with evil? They go back and forth in the text. The brother's like, no, this is ridiculous, this accusation. We didn't do it. In in fact, fine, fine. Uh, Whoever is found to have the cup uh, will die, and the rest of us will be your slaves. And the steward comes back with a much softer rebuttal. Eh, Actually, no, just that person is going to be my slave. So they keep talking about this, and the narrative slows down, and you see the men put their sacks to the ground, and the steward comes and checks, no cup, no cup, no cup. And he gets to Benjamin's sack, and there is the master's special cup. And they're devastated. Verse 13. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. So there they go back to the city before Joseph, clothing torn, stomach full of knots of anxiety, I have to imagine. And Joseph says, what is this you have done? Now I realize Joseph planted the cup, right? And this is a bit of an artificial thing. Um, This was actually, as we said a couple chapters ago, Joseph's loving, affectionate plan to reunite the family and to rescue them and all of their people from this famine. But that question, what is this you have done? That question should jump off the pages at us. You know why? Because that question frames the human story. What is this you have done? That question is the entry point to Humanity 101 and this low anthropology I talked about a bit ago because that question is the very question that God asks Eve in the garden after Adam and Eve had rebelled. Genesis 3.13 Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Goodness. All of that sweet, beautiful, shalom-filled goodness in the garden. Can you imagine it? All of it. God was good to our first parents. And they repaid good with evil. Welcome to the human story. Welcome to humanity. 101. Look at this family, Jacob and his sons. They had this enormous privilege of being God's extra special family. Of all the families of the earth, God did what? He chose this family. This messy, messy family. And he chose them for what? Yes, for blessing, but to be agents on his mission, to be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. Whoa, what a privilege. And how did they repay all of that good from their God? 
by being driven and fueled by envy and jealousy, throwing their brother Joseph in a pit, going back, lying to their father about it, and pretending like it never happened. Repaying good with evil. It's not fun to talk about, right? Um, But this is your story, and it's my story too. This is the shape of our narrative too. Think about it. Being human is such a good gift, isn't it? Look around at all the critters you see in this world. Being made in the very image of God. What a privilege, right? What a privilege it is. The very next breath that you take, that is a good gift from God. It is. The food in your refrigerator, the love you have experienced, belonging to a community, having a calling, having work, All of it is a good gift from God, and yet our lives are characterized by repaying good with evil. That's what sin is. It's not logical. I don't know why we do it, but we do it. God offers us himself and all of the good that comes with himself, and we say, I'd rather have my thing, repaying good with evil. Uh, If you ever go to Zagreb, Croatia, there's this museum that you and your family must visit. It's called the Museum of Broken Relationships. I'm kidding. You probably don't want to visit that because it would be a huge drag because it is what it sounds like. It's a museum that has been dedicated to relationships that have been broken and shattered and fallen apart. And so in that museum, you will find items like this box made out of uh, matches that frames the happy couple, Valdo and his wife. Actually, Valdo, the husband, made this for his wife on their wedding day. And as you go through that museum, you would find stories like this story that his now ex-wife attached to the box. She writes, After 18 years of marriage, he left me for another woman. We officially divorced after our 25th wedding anniversary. For our 25th wedding anniversary, I ordered a cake with the number 25 written on it, and I had the pastry shop cut it in half. I sent him the half with the 25. Our son celebrated our anniversary first with me and then with their father. He and his girlfriend were very shocked, but they ate the cake anyway. The cake is gone, and so is our marriage." Now, at that museum, as soon as you walk in the Museum of Broken Relationships, there should be another exhibit, a more prominent exhibit, and it should be dedicated to the forbidden fruit. And it should say something, you know, have a note there from God describing this scene in Genesis 3 that I read to you that reads something like this, I gave them good, I gave them so much good but they repaid it with evil. And that note should continue to read, and so I, God of the universe, moved on from them. I did. I said, enough with them, enough with you, Adam, enough with you, Eve, enough with all this in humanity itself. I am moving on to make a new life for myself. But that is not the story of the Bible, is it? And that is not the story of humanity, is it? It's not, because our God 
doesn't walk out on Adam and Eve in light of their failure. And he doesn't walk out on this family in light of their failure. And he doesn't walk out on you and me in light of our failure either. Because God is the kind of God who over and over and over again repays evil with good. He repays evil with good. One of the first places you see it in this story is through the words and the actions of the brothers themselves, of Judah. Joseph says, what is this you have done? Verse 16, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. So do you hear what he said? He said, how can we prove our innocence as it pertains to the cup? But as he's saying that, he says, he actually admits their guilt as it pertains not to the cup, but to the thing they did to their brother Joseph 22 years before. And you could miss it, but that, that is beautiful repentance. It's beautiful honesty. That sort of confession, that sort of repentance is good. It is. It's a good gift from God. And God is the one that is prompting that honest moment of repentance. In the same way, look at your story, all the things that you've done. And thank God with me that God does not leave us cold-hearted to our sins. I mean, all the evil, all the wicked that you and I have done. What does God do? He comes after us, and he knocks on our hearts by his Holy Spirit, and he convicts us of our sin, and he shows us how miserable we will be without him by choosing our own ways. And he woos us lovingly, gently, to hit our knees and to be honest about the evil that we have inflicted and to repent. That is good, isn't it? And that is one way he repays evil, your evil and my evil, with his good. But there's more. Story keeps going. Fine, the brothers say. Uh, we'll all be your slaves. We deserve it, right? God knows that we deserve it. And Joseph responds, actually saying, guys, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm not... I'm not a leader like that. In fact, all you have to do is just leave Benjamin and the rest of you can go back to Egypt and live peacefully with your father for the rest of your lives. This is where I think the fruit of God-induced repentance really shows up. Because think about it. Now more than any other time before, these brothers have the exact scenario they had with Joseph. All they have to do is say, okay, take Benjamin. We're going to go back to Egypt. Maybe we tell our dad the truth about what happened to Benjamin, or maybe we don't. Maybe Benjamin was torn apart by a wild animal. And the same thing that happened to Joseph happened to him. They could have done that, but they didn't. They didn't. Judah speaks up, you don't understand, our dad is going to die. If we don't bring Benjamin 
back to him. And then Judah says this in verse 33. Now then, please let your servant, talking about himself, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Now that is not only repentance to a new way of living. That, my friends, is the first mention in the Bible of one person being willing to give up their life in order to save another. Yes, that is a picture right there of who Jesus is. And what he has done for us on the cross. It's the gospel. And it melts hearts. Look what it did to Joseph. I mean, at this point, Joseph has been moved emotionally, but he's been able to take himself away from the story and weep alone, right? He can't do it anymore. He can't hold back the power of God to actually change wicked people into gospel people rips him open and moves him to reveal his identity. Verse 1, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? What an incredible moment. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's redemptive, it's good, and it is from God. It's God repaying evil with good. God is doing this all over the story. God wants these brothers to be a part of his spiritual family, doesn't it? He's pursuing these wicked men. If there is a conversion moment, it's right there in verse 33 with what Judah says. In the lives of these brothers, that's the conversion moment. Why is it there? It's because God all along has wanted them, yes, wicked people like them, to experience the good of knowing Him. And listen, if we talk about how God is repaying the evil in your life with good, well, it often goes like this. Uh, Andrew, why am I experiencing this suffering? Why did this person leave me? Why uh, am I estranged from my children? Why this financial crisis or this vocational crisis? Why this diagnosis? Why? Tell me why God is doing this to me. And often my answer is this, I don't know. I really don't know, but this I do know. That God is after your heart in this. That through this, God is after you. Now, why can I say that? Because that's what happens in this story, and that's what happens in this whole story, in the story of human history. When God sets his eyes on someone he wants to save, he's all in, and he's going to do it. And no matter the evil in our lives, whether it's something done to us or something that we do, God somehow is able to orchestrate good in it all, the good of knowing him and being in right relationship with him. Now, this is where things get interesting, right? And we have to admit some mystery, that we are not God and we don't understand how he does things. Because there's this question that's presented. God is not just pursuing our hearts. Um, He's working for our good and for the good of his people. And he's using evil as 
something to build toward that good, right? So here's the breakdown in my mind. You can speak with Julian, our theologian, later to get a better, more crisp explanation of this, but here's what we know. God is in control of human history, right? He's sovereign. In fact, God knew that the brothers were going to do this before they did it. God is in control. We know this. There really is evil in the world. Uh, We see it all around us. We choose to do it. People choose to do it to us. Um, Number three, God is not the author of that evil. It didn't originate with him. He's not. God is eternally good and holy. He cannot be the author of that evil. Therefore, God can be in complete control orchestrating our good through human evil, but without being the author of that evil. And if it sounds heavy and over your head and over my head, that's because it is. It's a mystery. And it's one that we need to sit in. And it's one in which we need to sit in and learn to trust our God through it. Joseph, for the last 20-something years, has been sitting and marinating in this mystery to the point he can say this in verse 5 of chapter 45. And now, he's saying this to his brothers, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Says it again in verses 7 and 8. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Isn't that remarkable? You were the people doing the human trafficking. You were the people that sold me into slavery and doing this great wickedness. And yet, in view of God's sovereignty and goodness, it is as if God was the one who was sending me here. God wasn't committing the evil. You were, but God was working salvation through your evil all along. This is the way the Heidelberg Catechism says it whenever it deals with this issue, right? It says that God allows the evil to happen in our lives and our world so that whatever evil we experience, I quote, in this veil of tears, God, he will turn, he will turn, turn it all to my good for he is able to do it being almighty God and he is willing also being a faithful father. In other words, when we say God almighty is my father, This is the tension we're talking about. God Almighty, all-powerful, is also my Father. God is the one who sees it all, knows it all, can do it all, and lovingly is using it all, good parts and bad, for my good and for the good of his people. Now, I'm not saying any of this to minimize your pain. Sometimes Christians do that. Sometimes Christians say all this stuff to ignore injustice and just say, oh, come on, get over it. Focus on the good. You know, if God wanted us to minimize the pain and just focus on the good, he wouldn't have told us about all the suffering and hardship in this passage. Right? He wouldn't have. You said Joseph was sold into slavery. A couple years later, they, they met and it was fine. Everything was fine. See, everything's good. Everything's good. Nothing to worry about. No. If you feel like the sky is falling, it's okay to talk about that. As a matter of fact, there's no safer place in the universe than the church to unpack some of that. If you feel that way, if that's your experience, let's talk about it. Because your grief matters. 
It matters to God and it matters to your church. Your grief is worthy of what you're feeling and how you're feeling it. What we're saying is that we don't just stop there. As resurrection Christians, we don't just stop at the pain and the suffering, the evil in the world, because we know the bigger story of redemption that God is writing. Think about that. Jesus himself could have perfectly quoted Joseph when Joseph said, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Couldn't he have said that as he is courageously marching to the cross? All of it, it was to save your life. It was because God loves you. Despite all of our evil, what does God do? He repays it with the goodness of his son. In fact, on the cross, he exchanges our evil and the goodness of the Son, so that we can be adopted into the family as beloved daughters and sons of our God. We are not the church of Chicken Little. We really are the church of Jesus Christ. We do not run away screaming, the sky is falling, even though sometimes it actually feels that way. There is no panic in heaven. Over the chaos of this world reigns our King of kings, Jesus the resurrected, before whom every knee will bow, whether they like it or not. And so, when the pain is unbearable, when nothing else makes sense, and frankly, you can't really hold in tension this reality that God is in control and He's also good, when you are right there on the front row of Humanity 101 and experiencing all of its wickedness coming at you, but also coming from you, when the sky feels like it's falling, we look back. Not at this story. This is a great story. We look back at the cross. Because actually on the cross, the sky fell on Jesus. It did. The sky fell on Jesus. And all of our evil and all of our wickedness, well, all of the goodness of Jesus, it was repaid with that. And all of our evil was repaid with Jesus' goodness. The sky fell on Jesus so that you and I, brothers and sisters, will never have the sky fall on us. This is why we can trust that one day, not only has God repaid evil with good, but one day God will actually replace all of the evil with his goodness. And if you can hear the sound of my voice, wherever you are, whenever you're listening or watching this, God is inviting you to be a part of it. He wants you to be a part of it all. Lord, we thank you for that reality. You come after people like us, people like Joseph and his brothers, and that you, um, you exchange your goodness with our badness. Lord, we want that reality to grip us this week for the rest of our lives so that it's inescapable that you love us. Jesus really did die for us. He really did rise for us. And that, yes, Lord, we want your power, the power of the Holy Spirit to trust you in the midst of uh, the evil of this world and the chaos around us, that one day Jesus will return and make it all new. Lord, help us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the Ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.